Yeah, I've only had a I've only had a gun pulled on me once in all my years doing this. Well, that's one more than I want. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to The Defense Never Rests with Morgan and Akins, your monthly dose of uncommon sense about all things legal and some that are not. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of The Defense Never Rests. I'm your host, Megan Henry, joined by my co-host, Nate Bolander. Hi, Nate. Good morning, Megan. How are you? Good. It's Good. been a hot minute since you've been on. It has. Yeah, well, I've been busy. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've for been... for our listeners out there, it needs a new dad. Mm-hmm. If you can Two see weeks. The bags under his eyes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Actually, and, and, and this is, well, you can't see it here, but there's a changing table and a mobile. So that's, I'm right in the, the, the makeshift nursery, which is wonderful. I will say you don't actually look tired. You look fine. Oh, th- thank you. Yeah, well. You look we're very both, well we're, rested. We're both dragon. Yeah, I, I do help overnight. I promise. I promise. Ask out. <laughs> I believe it. I, yeah, I believe it. I mean, I will say. I mean, those first few weeks are, it's just a fog, but it's a nice yeah, fog. Yep. 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 I'm, up, I'm used to going, as you know, we've been friends for a while. I've been used to go to bed at 8.30 or 9. And, you know, I have the early shift, the late night shifts, and now I'm up till 1. So it's adjustment. I know it's, I haven't seen 1 o'clock in five years. So <laughs> well, now I have. I, I will say I, I found when I had, my daughters were newborns. Like I remember that 4 a.m. time was always like the quietest, loneliest yeah. time. Although like 4 a.m. for you, I, don't, I think that's like not an unusual time for you to be awake. No, I would rather we reverse this and we get up at two or something. And like, but we have, we haven't worked out our system yet, so we'll get there. Yeah. But anyway, we're not here yeah. to talk about, you know, <laughs> babies, although we could. Uh, we um, could. <laughs> but today we're joined by Howard Silverstone, who is a forensic accountant. Um, he's an expert we both have used um multiple times over our career and he's just like a great guy um and he makes accounting more interesting than i think well it, it, i think for howard how accounting is very interesting but he makes it yeah. interesting for the rest of us yep yeah tremendous expert really nice guy british accent which i, I think lends credibility to anyone once they open their mouth it's like people want to listen more so it's really good lovely. Yep. Just lovely. So yep. we're having him on to talk about, you know, his career and, you know, when, when you should hire someone, him or someone like him. So with that, let's bring him in. Good morning, Howard. Thank you so much for joining us on the Defense Never Rest. I'm so happy to have you. Good morning. Thank you. It's great um, to be here. And for, for our listeners, um, you know, Howard, I, I've known you for a long time on cases. I don't, I think like I was like a very green attorney and I think my part, partner I worked for hired you in that case and I, I was on the first phone calls with you I had no idea what I was talking about but you made me feel like I did <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think we met before the decimal point was invented <laughs> maybe perhaps <laughs> um but for our listeners you're, you're a forensic accountant um and you get pulled in as experts as an expert in a lot of litigate litigated files and probably pre-litigated files to help with you know i, I want to say the the numbers portion of the damages sometimes but before we like dive into that because i really want to get into later in this podcast like w- what is a good time to pull in someone like you into a case pre-suit you know post-suit whatever it may be but before we get into that, um, I always like to know, you know, from my guests, how they, how and why they got to where they are. So, you know, you're an accountant, like how how did, was your, were your parents an accountants or was it just like, you know, it just something you fell into? Uh, How did you end up there? So my parents both left school at the age of 13. Uh, They, they grew up in the, the, the 1920s in England 
And because of family circumstances, I mean, they, they both had to leave school 13 years of age and go out to work. So they never, and, and really no one in my family had any, I was actually the first one in my family to even go to college. So it was, but, but I think it started when I was about 10. I, 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 I'm ashamed to admit it in public, but I think I wanted to be an accountant from the age of 10. I had to take some uh, written test at school and you had to talk about what you wanted to be when you grew up. And I was always good with math and numbers. And I just, by instinct, I, I talked to my parents and I said, well, what can I do with math and numbers? And they said, well, you could be an accountant. So I wrote in this essay, I wanted to be an accountant. And I stuck with it um, until my teenage years when I got derailed a little bit and decided that I wanted to be uh, like a lot of my friends, a rock star <laughs> and, and started, started writing songs and getting into the music business. And, and my dad sat me down and said, well, what are you going to do when you're 30? So not realizing that, you know, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards would still be doing it at 80. But back then, you know, by the time of 30, you were washed up. And I said, well, I suppose I'm still going to be an accountant. So a lot of my friends went off and actually became rock stars. Really? Uh, yeah. And um, I, I decided to, to go into the accounting world. And then... Uh, my brother had moved to the States in the 70s, so I had come for a couple of visits and loved it here and found out that the accounting firm I was with in, in the UK had a huge operation in the US that just happened to be headquartered in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. So I applied for a transfer and they said, yeah, no problem. We'll send you over for a year. And that was 36 years ago. <laughs> I never went back. But but really when I first came over here, I'd only been here a few weeks. And because it was beyond the accountant's tax season in May, they didn't have a lot of work for me. And one day someone came along and said, do you have any experience in construction accounting? And I said, yeah, I have loads of it. Mm -hmm. And they said, great, go downstairs and talk to our partner in charge of our litigation support department, as it was back then. And um, he said, can you be on a plane Sunday to go to Dallas? And I spent the next two years going back and forth to Dallas, investigating a construction company that had gone bankrupt and an insurance company, a surety company was left holding almost $100 million in bonds. And we had to investigate what happened to the money and, and everything. And I was like, wow, I've discovered something I really like. And um, I never went back to regular accounting. Yeah. Well, when you explain it like that, it sounds much more interesting than, <laughs> than I think how like the, the general thought of accounting is, especially in like the public accounting sector when you're, you know, auditing you know, businesses or whatever. You just made it sound super more interesting. <laughs> well, you know, as I always tell people, I, in the business we're in, because ultimately we're writing reports and may have to testify I think you have to have the, the personality that you can do that, that you can speak publicly and whatever. And, and I've always told people, if you want to know the difference between a regular accountant and a forensic accountant, just go to a cocktail party. And if you, if you go to a cocktail party and someone's talking to you and while they're talking to you, they're looking at their shoelaces, they're an accountant. But if they're talking to you and looking at your shoelaces, they're a forensic accountant, much more outgoing. <laughs> yep. 
that's a great that's a great uh, delineation yeah. to make. I, I have a question before we continue. Why, just out of curiosity, when you visited your brother and decided to stay, you said you really loved America when you visited. What about it uh, made you want to leave England and come over for good? Um, I think firstly the Weather Channel. I was I was fasc- fascinated by the fact that I um, that I could l- watch the weather twenty four seven, you know. But it was also, you know, back in the 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 early eighties in England, things were a little tough um, politically and 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 other other things going on, and and I just, you know, my brother had been here a few years, and I just I think it was a much bigger space. You know, you've got Britain with 60 million people and with a land size about the same as Wisconsin. And, and then you have this country. And, and at the time, um, in old, he was living in Old City, Philadelphia. And, and it was just a very, the, mid, the early to mid 80s, it was just a lot of stuff going on. And, and um, I think it was just a challenge. I was just looking for a new challenge. And did you find when you transitioned from the London office of your accounting firm to the Philadelphia office. How was the culture different? So part of the reason why they agreed for me to come over here is we had a lot of clients in the UK who either had subsidiaries or parent companies based in the US. So I was often on, I was often on phone calls with people in the US uh, discussing different clients. So, so I was already used to the culture and 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 as you know, or you may you may know, in the accounting world, you know, debits are on the left and credits are on the right, and and unlike cars, which are on different sides of the road, debits and credits are on the same side in this country as they are in the UK. So it wasn't a difficult transition. The the, the biggest transition really was understanding the American accounting standards. And, and that's what, you know, you, that's why you have additional education and, and, and you just, I just spent going to a lot of classes and understanding it. Yeah. So, so when you started working on that, that one, the one project and you started getting involved in the, um, the forensic accounting, what, what was your progression after that? So we, we were the, the accounting firm I was with we were the first accounting firm in the country to offer those services where, where accountants would work with lawyers um, either before litigation or, or during litigation doing fraud investigate. Back then it was, you know, back in the eighties, there was a tremendous amount of uh, corporate fraud and, and just big, big uh, situations where money was missing. And, and that's really where we first got started. And so the progression really was doing a lot of those construction investigations with construction companies going down all around the country. Then in the, in, in the late, in the middle to late eighties was a lot of banks going down all around the country with the savings and loan crisis. Mm -hmm. So we were hired by insurance companies, but also by the government to find out like, where's the money going? Why, Why are these banks going down? And then you get, in, in, in the progression is you get to meet the lawyers who are handling it outside of the corporate world. So if it's going to trial, the lawyers will handle it. And that's where you started. We started making the relationships with the lawyers and people starting to realize that there's other things that we have skill sets uh, as experts that we can assist with. Yeah. 
That was my, my one of my questions was going to be who hires you, and I, you kind of answered it there. It's insurance companies and the government. But have you been involved in? I assume, given your answer, you've been involved in criminal uh, investigations as well, and, and seen oh, yeah. seen the folks you're investigating be walked into a courthouse or walked out of their house with handcuffs. Yeah, yeah. We we I mean we get hired by literally anyone. Mostly these days, lawyers. I, you know, either both plaintiff and defense lawyers in all kinds of litigation. But from the corporate world, uh, we, I have been, I've given testimony at grand jury on behalf of the FBI. We did an investigation where someone stole money, uh, a substantial amount of money, and, and I had to present that in front of a, a grand jury. And, and the guy denied it, denied it, denied it. We worked for it on months, worked through Thanksgiving weekend one year, um, and the morning of the trial, he pled guilty. And the judge threw the book at him. The judge said, you would have had a lesser sentence, but you have had us spend, have the government spend a lot of money when you could have admitted this months ago. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And in fact, the very first, the very, very first, other than this, this construction company in, in Texas, the very first criminal investigation I did was a, a savings and loan where a bank manager 21 or 22 year old bank manager had stolen $500,000 and signed the confession and the bonding company they had a fidelity bond and the bonding company said, before we pay this claim, um, we'd like you just to check it out, make sure the numbers add up and that we're not overpaying. And the, the partner in charge of it, I was 25 years of age at the time. He said, I want you to interview the bank manager. He said, it's about your age. And I think he can relate to you. And, Literally, I went in with a, with a blank piece of paper and just started talking. And I said to him, did you sign this confession? And he said, yes. Uh, he said, I just realized, you know, the gig was up. I said, and you took $500,000? And he was actually in my office. He was sitting in my office and he kind of looked around like this. And he said, well, between you and me, he said, based on what I've spent, I think it might be more. <laughs> and and that's that's why I never went back to regular accounting because that to me was just you know that's what gets the adrenaline flowing when when you have something like that. That's pretty amazing uh, interrogation skills. Two questions it's already. <laughs> you should be hired by by the FBI itself because you did two questions. You uncovered the whole thing. He 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 just wanted to be you know once once it was discovered he just wanted to, to move on and what it face whatever and and I think he knew. That, that he wasn't going to face any charges from, from his employer because back then the savings and loans were, were primarily localized and, and a lot of older members of the community. And, and I think the, the, the mindset was if word gets out, people will start physically taking their money out, even though we all know that's not how it works. So they, you know, they didn't press charges against him. They came to agreement where he would pay them back over time. And, um, and that was it. But I think, yeah, he just wants to be done with it. Now, when, you, when you're involved in these, the, the criminal cases, like, did you ever feel like, nervous in the sense that you're like going against people who are, you know, committing fraud or, you know, willingly committing um, crimes? Like, I, I just always think about like, def- like, you know, prosecutors and how sometimes they might feel like, uneasy be like these people might find out where i live and hunt me down and yeah. you know do terrible things to my house or me or my family 
Yeah, I've only had a I've only had a gun pulled on me once in all my years doing this. Well, that's one more than I want. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we we were uh, the, the, uh, there was a bonding company, a, a, a bail bond company, that was being taken over, and we were asked to investigate the what was going on at the bail bond company because it was felt that they were not producing all the information they should. And, and once again, I got picked on because of my youth at the time and because I had a British accent. And the partner came in and he said, I want you to go up to, I think it was North Jersey and meet with these people. He said, I would just tell you, they've thrown three other people out, but we got to get this done. And, and I walked in and I sat down and I said to the owner, I said, you know, all I need to know is your, how your accounting system works and everything. And, and at that point, she reached into her drawer and she took a gun out and put it on the desk. And she said, I've just about had it. And she said, I don't think you people understand. You're not going to get any information. And I looked at her and I said, you know, I'm just doing, you know, what I've been told to do to get this. And she looked, she, then she leaves. She said, wait a minute, where are you from? And I said, I'm from London. She said, what part of London? And I told her the next thing she picks up the phone and she calls her son who worked in the business. She said, get in my office. He comes in the office and she said, he's from where your grandfather was from. (laughs) And we start talking and she looks at him and she said, show him where the uh, the ledger is and, and see what he needs. And, and, and that was it. She put the gun away and um, I pulled the British card. You're, you're magical. <laughs> a couple questions in the accent combined and you just, you solve everything. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. That's why I've been here 36 years. I was only supposed to be here. <laughs> well, I will say, it, I think having a British accent allows you to, to deliver bad news and it sounding not so bad. Uh, do you find that sometimes you're put in the situation like, Go have Howard deliver the news because it yeah. just doesn't—it doesn't hurt as much. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because I, I kept, there's a I have a a, a a desk calendar, and it, it's a quote of a diff, each day is a different quote, and I and I kept this from from yesterday because I just thought this this was it's funny you should ask this question because I had it sitting here. It says advice is what we ask for when we already know the answer, but wish we didn't, and 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 somehow yeah. I've. You know, somehow as a forensic accountant with a British accent, I've been able to give people the answers they didn't want, but they accept them. And and that's, you know, that's how it works. Now, I want to, before before we jump into the, the heart of, of this, because um, I, I don't want to run out of time and forget about it. Before we got on, you had your, your before I saw your video turned on, you have a picture of you and... Prince William, explain it, please, <laughs> for us. We all, we all want to know. <laughs> so, for the past thirty years or so, I have been volunteering my time in the Philadelphia region for the British American Business Council, and and the British British American Business Council is a conduit for British business to promote itself in the U.S. So if you come over here as a British business and you want more exposure, there's a number of ways of doing it, obviously, through the British government, through the consul general's office in New York, which are who are really the advocates for British business in the US. 
but we have the British American Business Council in this region where we have social events, networking events, all kinds of fundraising events to really help get British business exposure in this country. And based on, based on that, uh, I was given the award of being made a member of the British Empire by Her Majesty the Queen in her, she, she does it twice a year, the New Year's, she call, they call it the New Year's Honours List. And then in, in June, it's her, her birthday, the Queen's birthday honours list. And, and I received that back in 2018. That's and she, she has delegated a lot of her, these types of things to Prince Charles and Prince William. And on the day that I was invited with my family to go to Buckingham Palace, Prince William was, was doing the honours. So for those of us who haven't been to Buckingham Palace, which I think is I'm going to say probably everyone who listens to this, <laughs> like, what is the feeling when you're walking in? I mean, it, it has to feel so surreal. You, you unbeknownst to me, they're, they're, uh, and to my family, there are hidden cameras throughout the palace, and they're actually videoing you during it. Um, and it's a bit like going on a Disney tour, because at the end of it, you can actually buy the video <laughs> and the pictures, <laughs> which we did. And, and well, yeah. you just, you just, the whole video, I'm looking like, and you can see me going, <laughs> because it is, it is the greatest collection of artwork and furniture you've ever seen. But more than that is, for me, having been born and grown up there, it's the history that goes with it. And, and just, it, it was just an incredible experience. And he knew why I was there. He was asking me all questions about the British Business Council and the folks in New York that I work with. And, and he had been well briefed. But it's just, I, I think, awestruck or awesome is, is really how you describe it. Yeah. And I mean, I would, I think I would, I think that's just talking about being starstruck in a way, because I mean, this is the, it's just a huge figure. And then you're in this, this iconic place they like how you describe walking through there is exactly how i would imagine like i, I don't think i'd be able to put words together yeah and, and just one quick thing the, the the greatest thrill we had was was coming out of our hotel and and hailing a cab you know a london taxi and saying to the driver buckingham palace please and then giving him this vip thing to put in his windshield which allowed us they don't allow you to pull up by the gates there for obvious yeah. reasons the police saw him and they're like, and just being able to pull up outside the gates and then you get out. I was dressed in a morning suit, you know, the, 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 with the long tails and everything. And, and my family were all nicely dressed. And, and, and there's all these tourists videoing, like, who are these people? <laughs> An accountant from Philadelphia. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. 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 Like if you, you, if, it would have been great if it, in that scene you could just t take all that, that t pull that Philadelphia accent out and just say something to the people. Like. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> well, just one quick aside from it. At the end of it, when you come out and you've got your medal and everything, they take official photographs. So we were standing in line and the, the gentleman behind us heard my wife and kids talking and heard their American accents. And he said, oh, where are you from? And my wife said, well, my husband's from here, but we're from New Jersey. And he said, Cherry Hill? And she's like, yeah. 
And it turns out he 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 worked in London for an American bank that was uh, had business in Cherry Hill, and that was the only town wow. in New Jersey that he knew. Wow! <laughs> well, wow! Yeah. Side I, side note: I didn't realize we were neighbors. I'm in Voorhees, so we could we could have done this together. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it, so before, actually, I wanted to ask you this too. So, did you met your wife while you were living here? So she she's American? Yes. Okay. And how, and like, how often did you travel back with your, your kids and your family to, to London? So, uh, years ago, I would say several times a year with the kids Mm -hmm. when fares were, you know, $299. Um, but sadly, you know, nine 11 came along and, and that changed the landscape. And then my father passed away and then my mother moved over here So we go back less and less. We had been going back like once a year until COVID came along, but you know, I I gotta, gotta be able to maintain this accent somehow. So I have to go back (laughs) at least once a year. (laughs) Yeah. You got to keep it going. You can't lose it. (laughs) When let's get into the meat of it though. When, when, you know, we're all in litigating files and, you know, we have a lot of people in claims listening to this podcast. So, you know, what what is your recommendations or what advice would you give to um you know a claim claims handle or an attorney handling a case pre-suit or while it's in suit of like what what when do when do we want you like when is the best time to bring in howard yeah well i tell i tell everybody and again it doesn't matter if you're a claims person if you're defending a case or, or even if you're a plaintiff lawyer asserting a case i i always recommend to people that they get an expert involved, as I call it, sooner versus later. Mm-hmm. And because I believe in the long run and, and practice has shown over the last 35, 36 years, you're actually going to save money doing that. You know, people think, well, I'm, if I'm going to hire someone, they're going to be on the clock, it's going to cost me a lot of money. If you don't get them involved early and you don't have the, the requisite information and documentation, the expert's going to be doing a lot more work than they may necessarily have to because they don't have that stuff. Mm-hmm. So getting someone involved early allows you to anticipate based on what the claim may be, what documentation should I have? What information, you know, getting your ducks lined up so mm-hmm. that down the road, because unfortunately we get a tremendous number of calls when discovery is either closed or closing mm-hmm. and, 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 the most frustrating thing is when a deposition has been taken and, and we haven't been involved and, and you read 300 pages of a deposition and nowhere in there has, it, has have they been asked any questions related to their finances. Yeah. Um, and, and conversely, you know, if, I, if I'm working with someone who's asserting a claim, it's frustrating when I say to the claimant, well, let me have your W-2s and tax returns. Well, I'm not sure where they are. Uh, I'm going to have to find them as opposed to if you get involved early and you say to the lawyer, listen, before I interview your client, I'm going to need them to have their tax returns, their W-2s. I don't want to interview them until they have that information because it's going to save you a lot of time and money. So, so really it's, it's, it's anticipating based and, and it's really, it's any kind of case, even an internal investigation. If someone says, you know, I think someone in my company is stealing money. It, the earlier you get in, the better before they've had a chance to maybe uh, destroy any of the information, especially now with so much 
records being kept electronically, they they could have access to things that, that they shouldn't have. Yeah. But more, oh, sorry, go ahead. Ahead. I was gonna say, I'm always surprised when, when I let you let experts know, you know, I need to retain you, whether it's on the phone or over email, the first question that's asked is when's discovery closed? That's always the first question after conflicts, you clear conflicts and then you get to discovery. And when I say, oh, a year and a half away, the surprise with experts is always funny to me. <laughs> like, why would I give, why would I call you for the first time, you know, with two weeks left in discovery? But I think like we just said, Howard, some people wait a long period of time, which probably isn't the way to go. And I will, to, to back up what you said completely, having an expert on board when you do written discovery, depositions, et cetera, and giving documents to that expert as you're going throughout the course of the case, they will notice things sometimes that I haven't noticed. They'll compare two sets of tax returns from five years ago and two years ago and say, did you notice this? And I, to be quite frank, I hadn't noticed that piece of minutia, but it really matters. And let's go back and issue some supplemental discovery. So I, I completely agree that, that if you, if you know, you need a forensic economist, do not wait until you get their, yeah. you get their tax returns on the eve of the discovery. Yeah. And it applies really, as I say, it applies to, to any expert. And, and, and you're right. Like if I get a phone call, and someone says, if someone calls me February the 9th uh, and they say, well, uh, your report won't be due until June of 23. The first thing I say is, oh, thank you, <laughs> because that lets me ask for the stuff that I really want. Yeah. And, and, and again, you know, I've, I've had plenty of claimants where I've sat down with them and they just they don't have their stuff together. And, and the same thing when, when I'm working with someone that's already had a claim asserted against them, and I'll say, well, did you ask for this? Oh, no, I didn't, I'm not sure. I didn't think that was important. You know, if, if, you, if you know that there's a financial or economic loss being made, then the thing I always recommend is you know that there should be financial documents that go along with that. Whether they're, if it's an individual, you know, tax returns, W-2s, employment records. If it's a company, the business tax returns. In this day and age, I will tell you, I've got a tremendous number of cases where we get the QuickBooks records, backed up QuickBooks records on, it used to be disc. Remember CDs? Remember when people used to send CDs out? Now it's, uh, if we're lucky, it's on a flash drive. Or if not, if not, they might do it in a share file, which is a lot more difficult. But you know, that that's what you need, and it's and it's 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 imperative if 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 you are looking at a financial claim that you have asked for this financial information during the period of time that you can do it, because once discovery is closed, as you know, you can't get it, and then it, it it's really you the the, the least amount of occasions where you can have an expert using statistics because they don't have the actual information and use corroborating actual data, then the better it's going to be, especially if you have to go into a courtroom and explain it to a jury, because there are three of us on this screen and each of us has our own history of work, our own history of earnings. So why should we apply statistics to any of us yeah. when each of us here has a history of earnings? Instead of saying, well, I didn't have that information, so I just had to get the average earnings for a lawyer in the Philadelphia area, as opposed to what that person was actually doing. And that's really key. Oh, for sure. Because, you know, we handle a lot of cases, and it's sad. We do handle a lot of cases involving babies and children. 
And, and in those cases, to a greater extent, you do have to use statistics because from an earnings standpoint, they haven't reached that point. But, but you know, it's very frustrating as an expert when you have someone who's 40 years of age and you're forced to use statistics for their earnings as opposed to, now, if they've changed careers and whatever, you know, there's, there's different ways of doing it, but you really have to, uh, you have to dig in and get as much information as you can up front. Now, how, how do you keep it interesting for, especially in front of a jury? Because, you know, people like glaze over when it comes to a lot of experts when they testify, the doctors or whatever, because it just, you see it in the jury, like they just kind of sometimes can check out. So, you know, when you're, you're on there testifying, I mean, you have to get the information out there, but you have to do it. So they're actually listening to it. So how do you, how do you keep it interesting? You have to keep it simple Mm -hmm. because if you start getting into using jargon Mm -hmm. and and language, which is used in your own industry to people who are in a jury who don't know that or understand that you're immediately going to lose them. And, and, you know, I was in a case, I was testifying in a case recently I, I get involved, as I mentioned, I get involved in a lot of like construction disputes and, and we do a lot of subrogation work where claims have been paid and then those claims are subrogated and you're talking about uh, some kind of catastrophe, a fire, flood or whatever. And, and so I end up testifying after the engineers do. And, and a great engineering expert, and I've worked with a, a lot of great engineering experts, they're able to, to discuss the tolerance of, of metal to heat to a certain point where, where a jury will understand it. And, and they put it in everyday, in everyday terms. And that's what you have to do as an accountant. So you explain to a jury for a wage earner, they all know what a W-2 is because they all get one at the end of the year. They all know that they have to fill out a tax return. So you have to explain that, you know, the claimant is 40 years old and I would have expected to see that they have tax returns and W-2s from their employer. And you see the jury, you know, they're nodding. When you get into some of the, the more uh, technical areas like work life and what age someone may work to, then again, you have to explain it. You have to explain, for example, that, you know, anybody in a given year could die. Anybody in a given year may choose not to work. Anybody in a given year may be unemployed. You know, you just have to kind of take it through that process. And, and, and we do have a way of presenting when we do those kinds of losses, we do have a way of presenting it. Explaining to a grand jury of, I think there were 25 people, how someone stole three quarters of a million dollars from the treasury department of the company he worked for was a bit trickier because, <laughs> because you had to go back to explain how the cash was accounted for and how the cash was put into bags and how the cash was taken out and who signed off. So you, you know, we, I had to go very systematically through that. And, 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 and what I love about doing this in front of a jury is when you see nodding heads 
or you see people making eye contact with you, you know that they get it. Yeah. And, um, you know, you're always going to have the, you know, juror number six who's just off in space doing because they're just not, they've checked out anyway, you know. But, but you have to find um, a way of, of just really explaining it in everyday terms that, that, that anyone can understand. Yeah, and in reality, you need you don't need every single juror to listen. You just need some. And then when they get back there, they might, they're going to, the ones who listen are going to hopefully, I guess the hope is explain it to yeah. the others or fill in the gaps. Yeah, and I, I, I was very fortunate. A lot of people don't like jury service or jury duty. And, and I've had it a number of times, but I was picked on a jury one time and I, it was a criminal trial and they told me it was a one day trial, which it was, it was a one day trial, but it took us three, three days to basically end up being a hung jury anyway, because we couldn't agree, but it was a great, it, it was great to actually be on a jury mm-hmm. and see how jurors think. Yeah. And in fact, during the, the voir dire of the jury, the judge I was the last one to be seated and the judge asked me what I did for a living. And I told him and, you know, both lawyers were like, okay. Cause they both knew that having someone that understood what a jury is might be able to help. And, um, and it was a great experience. When you, when you talk about explaining really complex economic issues to a jury and trying try to um, do it in a, in a really nice explanation way. Um, what about the, the rise of cryptocurrencies. I always think about that. And, you know, with, with digital currencies, A, do you have cases that involve that? B, do you have specialists that, in the field that, that deal with that? And C, how do you explain the blockchain to a jury, you know, yeah. taking it from cash to something that's less tangible? Yeah, or me. Yeah. <laughs> well, or anyone, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We haven't actually handled any of those cases yet. Um, but I have a couple of colleagues who have done a couple of presentations on, on blockchain and cryptocurrency and and they really you know and they've, they've done it to uh, peer groups to other cpas but they've also done it to members of the legal community and and you know you need you need that's where you need a a, a visual you know and that's that's one of the things also when you're when you're testifying as an expert visual aids are are very important and they can also be detrimental because you can create a visual aid that's so confusing that you just lose people. But if you have a visual aid that basically shows how blockchain works, that it's, it's, it's really a, just a more sophisticated accounting system or general ledger. You know, it's, a, it's like a general ledger in the crypto world. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you know, cryptocurrency, uh, I just saw the other day that... Um, um, I think it's Tesla is allowing people to pay for their cars now using using cryptocurrency, and and when you see that the the Staples Center in LA has been renamed the Crypto.com Center, um, it tells you that there is there's a lot of money floating around, and we haven't seen a lot of litigation yet. We haven't seen a lot of fraud investigations yet. But I, I would suspect that a couple of years down the road, we're going to, because it's in the same way as when personal computers, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm old enough to admit that I remember the advent of personal computers. And because I started off in the accounting world before there were any. And once personal computers came along, 
And once computerized accounting came along, guess what followed? People uh. getting into those systems and stealing money because the people above them didn't understand how to better control them. And I think we're going to see that in the, in the, um, and in fact, I just, I, I, I saw one of your previous podcasts where you were talking about the cannabis industry. Mm-hmm. And that's just to kind of go off a little bit here, but that's another area where I've been writing and speaking a lot lately is because I'm concerned that this is a new, a relatively new industry. It's a cash industry. And there are a lot of people who are getting into it because it just sounds so great, but they may not yet have in place the controls they need to control the cash and to really do the due diligence of the people who are investing with them. Or similarly, the investors don't really know who they're getting into business with. And I th- we're starting to see some litigation now. And I think that's another industry. But again, if it ever went into a courtroom, you're going to have to really explain to to a a jury what's unique about that industry because it's a cash industry, because of the the, 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 the dichotomy between federal and and state rules, that it's still illegal at a federal level, that you can't really bank with a bank. That's why you're using cash, you know, and that's so it's it's kind of the, 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 the other side to crypto because crypto is so sophisticated, mm-hmm. whereas the cannabis industry has gone back to the basics of we're using cash, <laughs> you know? So, so each, there's a lot of industries which, which you just, when you get into a courtroom, you've got, to, you've got to use visual aids and you've really got to be able to explain it in a way that everybody can understand it. Now, and I'm glad you brought up the cash industry aspect because that has to be a challenge on, on your end if you're dealing with a company that runs on cash and things can just not be there if it's cash isn't always tracked. So, that, you know, when you're, you're faced with that, that must be a bigger challenge too for you. Yeah. And that's the thing, you know, as, as we always say, you know, to use an old expression, you know, cash is fungible. So, and that's that's the problem with it because it can turn into other cash and it can turn into a lot of things very quickly. You know, there's, there's an old story with, with the IRS as, as part of its audits of pizza places. Um, what they used to do was they used to count the pizza boxes and they would say, okay, you bought 200 pizza boxes and you got 20 left. And so you, you've used 180 pizza boxes and the average pizza is $10, and therefore you should have $1,800 of income, but you only showed 400, you know, and, and they would assess people based on that. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, you know, and that's another thing is, so, so you really have to, again, and this is, comes back to about asking for information upfront and getting someone involved as, as quick as possible, because the more records you could get of a business to understand how that business operates and where they should be from a cash basis. And then looking where they are, will tell you whether or not there's a possibility that cash has gone missing. Yeah. We, we, we got a call years ago from a lawyer. He said, can you get over to my office? We were right across the street. He said, can you be over in my office in like five minutes? I have a client here with a problem. Ran across the street and his client said, I'm, I'm, a million dollars has gone missing. 
and I have a CPA and I think he's taking it. So I, again, sat down as we always do with a blank piece of paper. And it turned out the guy had three different accounting systems. He had one accounting system for his expenses and payables. He had one system for his billing and receivables. And he had another system for his expenses. And he was relying on people in the accounting department to pull all this information together. And they had literally made this huge administrative mistake and the, the million dollars was in his bank account and he just didn't know it. Huh. And, and I, and I, and I never forget. I said to him, I got good news and bad news. I said, the good news is you're not missing a million dollars. The bad news is you're going to have to invest some money in your accounting system and pull all this stuff together. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's different ways of looking at it, but you know, there's this benchmarks and other things but it is very difficult. But again, it's it's reliant on the, the, the sooner versus later. The sooner you can get in to look at a situation where you think there may be a problem, the better you're going to be that you may have the records to look at it and, and do those kinds of metrics where you can see, you know, is there money missing? Is it possible money is missing? How could they have done it? And do you find in your experience that you've seen more issues pop up with like less sophisticated operations or does it not matter? And when I mean less sophisticated, I'm kind of going off of what you just discussed at that one, one meeting that the, yeah. this guy had, th you know, three different systems working. Yeah. Um, I imagine like in my mind, I imagine it's easy. It's easier to say steal from a company if there's not as many checks and balances in place. Yeah. I mean, if you don't have the checks and balances in place, then you're going to open yourself up by definition. Yeah. The, the reality is, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm also a, a certified fraud examiner and, and the, the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners produces this report every two years that's called the Report to the Nations. And it's basically a report on white collar crime. And the one thing that is consistent every two years, ever since, ever since this has been done, is and even even now in 2022 is that over 50 percent of internal frauds are discovered by accident or tip mm -hmm. so so you can have the best controls but there are always going to be people that will circumvent those controls and and there was a there was a banking convention a few years ago which i always quote from the the head of mastercard admitted that it was always going to be an issue. And she said at the time, we're building 10-foot walls, but the bad guys are building 11-foot ladders. Yeah. And, and it's so, yeah, look, the, the reality is the more controls you have in place, you're going to give yourself a better chance of preventing fraud and the, you know, those things from happening. But you, you can never sit back and say, we have the perfect system because no one has the perfect system. Well, yeah, one, one of the things, oh, sorry, Megan, go ahead. No, go ahead. One of the things I definitely wanted to ask you, Howard, and I, I certainly hope I don't overstep, and I, I don't think I am, but <laughs> we'll see, um, is that, you know, the connotation of experts, because you're, you're retained and hired by one side or the other of the caption is that, you know, and I, again, I don't think this, but this is what people say, hired gun, or, you know, a lot of people only work for one side. I'm only a defense or only a plaintiff side expert. You, right. you do both. I will say in full disclosure, we work together. I find you to be super objective, but 
I think a lot of times people say, well, listen, it's the battle of the experts and they'll just, they'll just say whatever you want them to say. You're paying their bills. You'll call them up and you'll say, I want the report to say X and, and PS, please quote me and put it in your report. I've never had that happen. Every expert I've ever said, can this be opined or do you think this happened? They've said no, or they'll give me pushback if they don't agree with it because they have to testify it later, testify to it later and put their name on it. Yeah. What do you say to people who are listening to this that say, well, you know, you're being paid by one side or the other. You want their business again. You want to make them happy. Uh, so clearly you're just, you're just a hired gun in that sense. What do you say to those people? Right. So if you look at our website, the first thing you see on our website is we are not advocates for our clients. We are advocates for our own opinion. Mm -hmm. And that's made very clear up front with our clients that you may be hiring us and you or your client may be paying our bill, but that does not mean you're paying us to tell you, again, comes back to this quote here, advice is what we ask for when we already know the answer, but we wish we didn't, right? Yeah. So I'm not trying to give you any other answer than what I believe the answer should be. And, and for those of us, especially in, in this Philadelphia area, there are many experts who have been doing this for a long time. And, and none of us have been able to sustain that longevity by being advocates for our clients. We, we, we all have to be objective. And, and the, you know, the advantage of, of working with a plaintiff and working with a defendant, working with the government, working against the government, we, you know, we have a, a lot of clients, we, we do a lot of work defending people who are accused of white collar crime. We have a lot of people, we're defending a lot of people who have had actions brought against them by the IRS because that gives us the best way of looking things objectively, that we know, we know what it takes to put some, a claim together and for that to claim to stand up in a court of law in the same way that you know, people say, well, it's much easier to defend because all you do is you just pick holes in the other expert. Well, no, I mean, you, you have to have the experience to know what, those holes may be. You also have to have the experience to know when you're doing your own case, <clears throat> what another expert may say about what you've done. And so, you know, years ago, when, when I first got involved in this business, and we were relatively in a relatively new industry, it was always a question in deposition or trial. Well, isn't it true that the defendant's paying your fees? I, mean, I don't remember that actually the last time I was asked that question. Because I think, I think it's, the industry has matured to a point where it's just not worth asking. Because you know what? Your expert, if you ask that of the other expert, that's going to be asked of your expert. Yeah. And, and I think you, you, you don't stay in this business as long as any of us have by giving people the answers that they're paying, they're paying you to give them. You're, you're, being, you're, you're just, you know, just as when I was an auditor, you know, even though our fees were paid by the client, I had a lot of angry clients when they're like, I thought our company made more money last year. I'm like, yeah, but you spent a lot more money than, than came in. You know, they didn't always like the answer, but as an auditor, again, you have to be independent. And I grew up, that's what I grew up with being an auditor. I grew up with that level of independence. So transferring that to being an expert was not a difficult step because I was never an advocate for my clients, even as an auditor. And I mean, I think that's, I mean, that really speaks to your integrity too. And why, you know, ever like 
that's why we we like to work with you that's why plaintiffs attorneys like to work with you everyone wants to work with you because you're you stand by what you do and you're not going to just you're not an advocate correct um so we're, we are just about out of time, but I wanted to ask you one final question. You know, at the beginning, we had talked about, you know, how, how you got into accounting. Um, and, but if you, if looking back, if you had to do it all over again, would you stick with this path or would you maybe veer course and try that rock star path for a little while and, you know, see where it took you? <laughs> yeah, I think I would have, I would have gone into, to, having realized that I, I, there's only a certain period of time that I could have made it as a rock star, then I would have gone into music management. In fact, the first accounting firm I, the first accounting firm I worked with in London, the reason I chose that firm, um, and fortunately they chose me, was because they represented a lot of talent in the music industry. And I, yeah. got, to, I got to meet a lot of those people and do their accounts and, and whatever. Oh. So... You know, we're all we're all clever with hindsight. I love what I do. I don't think I would ever change that. You know, in, in terms of if I could go back and change it. No, I love this. It's every every case. Again, I'm going to say it starts like this. Yeah. But then, so does every good song. <laughs> so um, yeah. this, and you know, I've still got time. I could still write that one hit record. You never know. Can. Yep. there's always time to do this yeah and my fault fo- i have a quick follow-up on that are you willing to share you said some of your friends went on to be rock stars are you willing yeah. to share who they are are they people we would know um no you probably, okay. would, you probably wouldn't know them okay yeah okay please leave it at that okay you may have seen them you may have seen them on tv okay you may not know them yeah okay oh. okay okay well i will not ask you this is clearly a <laughs> clandestine topic i will leave it at that yeah, and unfortunately, one of them is a Tottenham Hotspur supporter, so I don't want to oh, give him God. any any mention. No, don't don't name drop him on this, please. Thank you. <laughs> well, Howard, I appreciate you so much coming on, but why don't you let um, our our listeners know where they can find you? Should they should they need need you or have any questions? That, <laughs> you know, maybe we might have some people in claims that might want to throw you know some questions at you before they yeah. retain you. They 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 I appreciate that. Our website is. <laughs> forensic resolutions uh, i always have to say it's a plural forensic resolutions.com okay. and and if i was to tell you how many times when i've told people i'm a forensic accountant and they say do you do with dead people <laughs> um but hopefully after this people will know that we we do more than do the investigation of dead people <laughs> you, you do work with dead people in a way not maybe the cadavers at the yeah. morgue, but you do you do have you do work with them some yeah. Well, yeah. yes, not with them, but maybe right. you look at their their numbers, their finances. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for for coming on this morning. Thank and, you. And, you know, I always appreciate talking to you. Um, it's just always a pleasure. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank Thanks you very much. much. Thanks for Thank you.